From the Saddle. Produced by Caitlin Hewitt and Joseph Maloney. Owned and operated by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. All rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Scott Keogh Horsemanship, offering a wide range of services from horse breaking and training to clinics and private lessons, tested, tried and true horsemanship coaching and advice, clear and easy to understand horsemanship advice, a common sense approach with no showmanship or gimmicks. Go to www.skhorsemanship.com for more information, products and a range of Scott's DVDs. Sport Horse 505 due to come out any day. Follow Scott on Instagram and Facebook. Morning folks, Scott Keogh here from the saddle. I've hijacked the studio again with my good friend Caitlin Hewitt and today we have the privilege of interviewing a man that I only know a tiny bit and, and I'd like to know a whole lot more. He was one of our top rodeo contestants that graduated to be one of our top camp drafters, along the way being one of Australia's biggest cattle buyers. He's been described to me as a cowboy's cowboy and a very fierce competitor. Today we go all the way down to Orange in New South Wales, and it's a very good morning to Mick Ward. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm very good, mate, and I really appreciate your time here this morning. Um, Mick, I just remember being a little fella at the drafts, and, and you, you, you were one of the veterans, one of the winners, but no one gets to start there, obviously. Um, Mick, I love hearing about people start, and how did you get involved in horses and rodeo? Well, I knew you were going to ask me that question, Scott, but I don't know how I learnt the ride, but I've always been interested in horses, just some people are interested in vehicles, and um, horses, we had horses in our backyard, Dad had um, work horses, and um, I, I just don't know when I st- learnt to ride, but I just, well, from as long as I can remember back, I'd be able to get on a horse and go with him or go with one of the other fellows, and um, and that's how it all started, I suppose. And the further to um, get into the rodeo side of it, well, we went to uh, Manildra Show, and there was a a bullock ride on there, and uh, they called it a bullock ride, but I got on a big old fat cow with a, just a round rope and a ring, and um, she threw me pretty hard, but um, that's what started me, and from then I got the bug, and um, in those days there wasn't many many radios around down here, but um, that's how I started, and then, um, you know, there's a, a few radios sort of um, Dubbo and Changi and all those places. And um, we started to go to those, and that's where, from then on, I got hooked on it properly. And I travelled for about, oh, 15 or 16 years, I suppose. Yeah, right. So coming into the sport, was your dad a good hand or did you have a bit of a mentor? Like, how did you get rolling? No, I didn't actually, I didn't have a mentor because in those days, in this area, there wasn't too many, and the only mentors that I could get was I used to watch the Hoofs and Horns, and you'd see all the, um, like in the Hoofs and Horns, that had the standards and who was winning and who wasn't. And um, no, I didn't have a mentor early in the piece, but I just started to get involved in it, and um, I think right through I just watched better riders, um, watched their style, and developed my own style and went from there. So are we talking saddle bronc and bareback riding at the time, Mick? Yeah, well, in the early days, it was saddle bronc riding. And um, a lot of times they didn't even have a rigging in those days. 
And I can remember a fellow called Lloydie Bates rode at Orange. We, had the, we used to have a rodeo and draft at Orange, and I suppose that's where I got really first got the bug. But, uh, yes, I used to ride um, saddle bronks and or buck jumps in those days and bareback. And, you know, like our gear, in those days, we weren't allowed to have our own gear. It used to be all the association gear. It used to come from Dungog. And um, Orange Rodeo starting and a month before the, dra- the rodeo, they'd bring up the secretary, Kath Sternbeck, and she'd uh, send you over six saddles and six bareback riggings and, and head collars, and they were all, you know, pretty ordinary compared with today's gear. Mm. That's crazy. That's hard to imagine. Yeah, it's pretty hard. And then, as I say, um, the first bareback ride was Lordy Bates and he used to ride them with a bull rope. It's hard to imagine today. Oh, so who were the tough guys? Who were the guys, like when you were hitting your straps, who were the guys that were hard to beat? Oh, like in full flight, I suppose. They were all pretty hard to beat. There was Graham Amos, um, a fellow called Les Buckingham. You never, ever had a contest one till you, you were in front of him because he, he used to work five events and was good at the five events. He could win any one of them at any time. But he was a good poly buck jump rider. Uh, Colin Thorne was another tough rider. Um, Terry Marshall, Graham Amos, all pretty classy. Yep. And um, another fellow who's gone now is Johnny Purcell. He was very, very good. And... um, and then as, as we got on a bit further along, you know, we developed a bit more style and used to see a few other riders and um, we picked our act up a bit And because um, we never had contract horses in those days. You didn't know what you was getting on. But there was a lot of, you know, a lot of tough horses in those days, but nowhere near what they are today. Hmm. And were you like one of the leaders, Mick, as far as um, the ABCRA? Were you a staunch ABCRA man? Well, I was, Scott, um, I was no more staunch than, uh, but only in this area, it was all ABCRA, like Trangy, Warren, um, Dubbo, Wellington, Orange, were all ABCRA rodeos. And um, I did a couple, of, I went down and I did a couple of the AWRA, uh, Bland and um, Waru and Kutamundra. Road there, but um, in those days there was a fair bit of animosity between the two associations. Fortunately, there is not today. And um, I think there was a rule that if you rode AWRA, you couldn't go back to ride um, Bushman's Carnival for six months or 12 months. And if you did, you got disqualified. So that was the only reason, there was no other reason than that, that they were in this area. And plus, I had a job at the same time. And to go to an uh, AWRA show, I had to virtually go to Queensland or to Victoria. Um, so I, I rode with a lot of AWRA fellas when we went to Hong Kong with the Gills, Gill Brothers. Yeah, I want to get to that story in a minute, Mick, because I, it, it turned pear-shaped, didn't it? Yes, yep. So uh, before we get to there, Mick, it, it, it's different times now. I know, like, for me... Um, I had to give up the horse riding and horsemanship to go bronc riding. It was one or the other. Where you come from an era where you, you went in the draft and, and the rodeo on the same day, more or less, didn't you? 
Uh, well, in the in the early days, or not in the early days, but in, when, when we were riding, camp rafting wasn't nearly as big as what it is now. And camp, you'd go to camp rafting radio, let's say at Scone or Walgut or wherever, and they'd camp draft till about you know one or two o'clock. They'd have the final of the open draft, and then they'd go on with the with the bronc riding, bareback riding, and bull riding. Um, and the full radio program. But how it started, um, well, to get into the camp draft, if you want to know how I got into that, there was a big centenary draft at Wellington. And there's a fellow called Jack Johnson. Like Scotty Johnson's granddad? Yeah, Scott, uh, Scott Johnson's grandfather. Yep. He had a team of horses and he had a bloke called Stumpy Timmons. That's right. That, that was a well-known bronc rider and, and a very good camp drafter. And he used to ride the horses for Jack Johnson. Yep. So anyway, there was this big centenary draft at uh, Wellington, and I was there, and Stumpy uh, got way laid, or his car broke down or something, he couldn't get there. And Jack was short of a rider. I knew him, and he said, listen, he said, Stumpy's not here. He said, would you ride my horses? I said, yeah, sure. You know, I didn't think anything of it. It was just I thought, oh, I'll ride these things and then we'll go on with the, uh, the radio side of it. Anyway, luck would have it that I won the open draft on a, on a grey horse he had called Silver. And um, there was two blokes there. There was Mickey Boss and another fellow called Tony Barney that both won Warrior Gold Cups and they come in second and third. So I thought, oh, this is a piece of cake, this care drafting. So Jack, was he, he was pumped up and I was pumped up and... I thought, oh, this is a good way. He said, would you ride if Stumpy can't come? I said, yeah, sure. One condition that you cart my bulldogging horse around to the rodeo. So that's how it started. And then, of course, I forget what happened then. I think he, um, oh, that's right, Jack came, he came down to Orange and there was nothing much on. And he had a pretty waspy horse, a cool Bruce horse. And he said, would you ride him for me? And I said, oh, yeah, right up. I ride him anyway. I got the horse off him. I eventually bought him off him, and that's what started me in, in the drafting. Then, because he was a well-bred horse, he was a, a Bobby Bruce or Cool Bruce bred horse. And any, any of the Cool Bruce horses or Bobby Bruce horses that I ever knew were over around the Scone district in that area. Yep. And that they were, you know, they were good horses. But every now and then you'd get a bad one, and he'd come into the rodeo string. And if you got a Bobby Bruce horse in there that, you know, was out of something and turned a bit bad, they'd buck him and they was usually pretty good horses. So that's how that's how the drafting started. And um, that was, you know, that was a fair... And I didn't take it up seriously, drafting for a good while because I had a, uh, you know, full-time rodeoing and, and um, I, I kept a job at the same time and used to go away the weekend, so... When the radio finished, I thought, well, I better stay home and raise the family a bit. So yep. that's what happened. Then I got into the, you know, got a couple of better bred horses and why I went. So what year would it have been that you won that open draft on the horse Stumpy was riding? Oh, it'd have to be before the 70s, I suppose. Might have been around about, might have been 70, around about 1970 or something like that. Right. Well, a pretty good introduction, mate, riding a horse that Stumpy had... Uh, had rolling? Yes, yeah. But at that stage, I, like, you know, um, camp drafting didn't mean much to me. Like, I wasn't I wasn't 100% uh, 
keen on it. Um, oh, well, I suppose I was 100% dedicated to the rough riding side of it. And I used to just like that, you know, I always had a half handy horse that I could go and muster cattle or do something at home. But, um, oh, no, I know it, it, it was a big shot in the arm for me, I'll tell you. Mm. And so if we're talking, let's say it was late 60s, um, you saw the Stumpy Timminses, you you saw the, the young Terry Hall, the, the young, not so young, the Ben Halls, the Hugh Miles, the oh, Comiskies. Who would you say is the best horse and rider combination that, You've seen in your time. Uh, yeah, the best horse combination would be Nigel Cable on on Ivory. Yep, um, he just had an affinity with him, and um, he, he, he'd think he was lost. And the next minute, he's got the second peg, and he's through the gate. But as far as the best horse and rider combination, that's it. But there's been some very, very good horsemen, and and. And they're getting better and better. All those blokes that you just mentioned, they've all been to schools, they've all studied it. And they're young in the early days. Um, you know, you didn't camp after it. It was, oh, well, you couldn't do anything else, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very seldom that you saw a young fellow drafting. You know, it'd be always 40, 40 and up. But now, but yeah, this. Um, white, young, and those fellas just out of their teens or just 20s. Yeah. Yeah, they're as tough as hell to beat now. Well, I mm. remember seeing Hugh Miles in a Gold Cup final on Old Conductor when he was 16. Now, when I was 16, I don't think I even watched the draft. I was at the shoots, you know. That was just the yeah, mentality no, you had it. at that age. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I went through that. I can remember um, Kerry Marshall... And we were at, at Walgett, and we were just waiting for the uh, radio to start the bronc ride. And um, he said, come and watch this horse here. He said, this is a bloke called Harry Ball. He said, this is a pretty bloody good horse. He said, that's how he talked. And uh, it was Abby. Yep. And that was the only time that I ever saw Abby run. Yeah, right. But that's, that's how we started on it. And, you know, just sort of progressed right through. So tell me, let's touch on the Hong Kong trip, mate. I, I, I only know snippets of this story. How and why did the Hong Kong trip even come about? Well, to my knowledge, there was a promoter called Bill Moody or Modi from, from New Zealand, and he got in touch with Jack Gill, and he'd been trying to get a, a show of any sort into... Araneta Coliseum in, in Manila. He tried a lot of singers and that sort of thing. Anyway, for some unknown reason, Jack Gill, and I suppose the, the boys, Happy and Peter and Brian, were all involved, and they, they cracked it with this um, rodeo, and they were contracted to do two-and-a-half-hour shows, what I can remember. And this was back in 1968, so uh, it was a fair while ago. And... Um, I think they took about 30 horses, 20 bulls, and about oh, 15 cowboys. And um, that's how it started. So they, they, they first they went to, we went to Hong Kong. Now Hong Kong in, in then was when the Vietnam War was on, and anything to do with Western was pretty kaboot, like they didn't want to have anything to do, any, any had any Western about it. So I think we were we were billed up as a Wild West show, and the show in Hong Kong, we had some good rodeos, but no crowd, no crowd whatsoever. 
So, of course, the income didn't come in, and Bill Murdy, he ran out of money. And then we went to the Philippines, and we were supposed to do Singapore and the Philippines and somewhere else. And uh, But in, in the Philippines, we had a different uh, culture of people. They had more Spanish and a bit more cowboys, whereas the Hong Kong people, all they knew about cowboys was John Wayne and, and those sort of fellas. So um, when we went to Manila, we got pretty big crowds there, and um, but unfortunately our show was spent, uh, the, the, like the humidity on the bucking horses, that we had to clip all the horses in, um, in Hong Kong. Then when we got to Manila, there was... Um, a earthquake and it dropped a lot of big buildings, Ruby Tower and all those I can remember. Anyway, our horses were stuck out on the ocean for about uh, a week, I suppose, before they could get them in, like to get the wharf back to where we could unload them. And they weren't worried about, you know, uh, 20 Australian horses and 20 Australian bulls. And they were worried about themselves. And we got, um, yeah, the horses, oh, they got pretty hungry and we couldn't get feed out to them and they lost a lot of their stamina. But anyway, we got over that and got to uh, the Aranata Coliseum and um, that's where the, we, we had some very good rodeos there. And um, by this time, Bill Murdia, I think he'd skipped to Maloo and, and the, the gills were left to, um, to run it. And... Um, because it was all right, like there's plenty of money coming through the turnstiles, but the uh, Araneta Coliseum management, they got, had control of the money. So they only doled out what, after our expenses, there wasn't much left for us. So that's that's how it, it finished up. And then a few of the, oh, the riders had their own horses, and, um, and Vicky Goff, he was one of them. He had four or five horses that he didn't sell to the promoter, but he sold, but he, he kept them himself. And when he was over there, he um, he sold them to a, a film actor, fellow called Raw Horse. And um, anyway, he got he got enough money to get out of the country. And I thought if anybody was going to get out of there, would have been Vic Goff, because at that stage they had us all under quarantine and and. Uh, a caveat over our whole show. And um, anyway, he got his horses out. We, I can remember helping him lead them down a, a back alley there. It was pretty spooky. And we had to tie bags around their feet so they wouldn't clip-clop on the bitumen or on the concrete. And um, anyway, we sold these horses to these guys. And I had a horse in them at the time. And I said, the bloke said, what do you want for him? And I said, oh... If I can get a, an airfare back to Australia, I said you can have him. So they were trying, they, like the Coliseum, they wanted to get rid of us, but we were we went in there as entertainers, and of course we had to get a taxation clearance and oh, all the rigmarole. And it was pretty scary for oh, for a week or ten days there. We didn't know whether we were getting out or going in the can. So that's what happened there. Anyway, finally. Um, Goffy got his money and I got my little bit but I didn't have enough and Goffy gave me some he, he helped me he gave me money to get home and pay the taxi fares and all that sort of thing 
But uh, but it's pretty bad feeling when you're broke in a <laughs> in a foreign country. I'll tell you. <laughs> but um, anyway, we got over it, and it was all history, and we all had a good time, and I met all the riders, and then you asked me um, with my bareback riding. There's a fellow called Alan Hicks, and he was a very very pretty rider, yep. good bronc rider. But he gave that away, and he concentrated on bareback riding, and he, if anybody. He helped me a long track with, with my bareback riding. That polished me off a fair bit. And still pretty sloppy handle riggings in that day, Mick? Ah, uh, yes. Yes, we had pretty sloppy handles, and I don't think there was any, any decent riggings at all. We had the international saddles. Yep. Um, and to be honest with you, the first time I saw one was the night I got on one. Um, I was drawn up on a saddle bronc. And um, these were the saddles, and I hadn't even seen one, let alone ride in it. But anyway, we mastered that, and uh, I suppose we lived to tell the tale, Scott. Yeah, that's right. And for, for the people out there that don't understand the saddle difference, the, the original poly saddle that, you know, Mick and that generation started in is more or less a small stock saddle, and it's a pulling action with your rein that keeps you on, but in the international saddle, it's a lifting action. Yeah, it was a small stock saddle, but... <clears throat> it's, it wasn't a comfortable like a lot of people used to ride in them, but they were pretty ordinary. And, and once we got our own saddles, I can remember I was at Murundi and a fellow called Johnny Stanton was there, and he was one of the gurus when I was growing up. And we were riding under atrocious conditions there, like, yeah, you know, they treat, treat you like bloody dogs. And, you know, Ward, you get his number two shoot. You say, but, but. No buts here, get on it. Anyway, I went to Stanton and I said, um, we don't have to put up with all these conditions and look at look at the arena, it's just slippery and going on. And I remember John Stanton saying to me, I, he said, listen, he said, I've just about finished. He said, I don't care what they do now. I said, that's not the right attitude, John. So you might have a kid that wants to ride one day and he'll be riding under the same conditions that we're riding. Anyway, he took a deep breath and he said, point taken. So that's when what we, the ABCRA called, we, we started the Riders Register and that was a, a membership of all the riders uh, and we had to pay a membership to cover our insurance and we voted in then to use our own saddles and our own riggings and it took a long, long time to get in, but that's how it started. So what, what number are you, Mick? What card number do you hold? Oh, that, that's a bone of contention. John Stanton should have had number one. Yep. And I should have had number two, three, or four because there was uh, a couple of other fellows in it. But um, he should have had one, and then they took it off him. But now I, I, I mine's um, oh, down in the 1,013 I am now, so but that's what we should have been. But anyway, that's part and parcel of it, and it hasn't worried me too yeah, much. Yeah, no, it's all, it's all part of the history. And so while we're on the subject of the horses, before we get into your cattle buying, Tom Williamson tells me that you're the best judge a horse he knows. He said, I don't know what it is that Mick can see, but he can buy a good horse. Oh, well, that's a pretty big shot in the arm from Tom Williamson. But no, I've always had good horses. Like, yeah, I reckon if you, if you can't be the part, if you look the part, you're halfway there. And I've always liked, I wouldn't ride a horse that was, that I didn't like or, you know, I thought it was pretty common. I always had a sort of a horse under me that was all right. Yep. 
So that's that's about it. But I'm pretty interested in in horses. And as far as you know, you said to me earlier, who was my mentor? Well, I don't think I had one mentor. I might have had a dozen mentors in this way. That doesn't matter who you talk to, um, you can always pick up something off somebody. I remember travelling from a cattle sale at Narrabri to Moree with a fellow called Alf Bignall. And he was a cattle buyer, but he was a guru. I think he used to draft reality and those horses. And um, he was a very good camp draft rider. And I can remember him saying then, overfeeding is just as bad as underfeeding. Yep. And, you know, you pick up something like that, they say it in a course of conversation. But if you if you pick it up and, and you put it in your memory bank, and I suppose that's what happened to me right through. I'd you know, talk to a lot of people, and you can always pick up something off somebody. You watch somebody, you see what he does, how he does it, uh, why he wins, and all, all those sort of things. Yeah, so. All right, mate. Well, before we get to the cattle buying stage of your life, obviously in your 40-plus years of drafting, it's gone from, you know, 40 in the open draft or 50 to 400, you know. I mean, the numbers have gone crazy. Uh, the sports, yep. um, the numbers are, are terrific, and it's brought in the weekend warrior, you know, the guy that lives on five acres and he doesn't own a bison, he doesn't have a stockman's job. What's the best advice you can you can help those people with, Mick? Um, dedication, that's my thing. Determination, the two things. But it doesn't matter. I think we're all blessed with some sort of a, Ability, you know, a lot of blokes now. You take Nigel Cable. He was a good tennis player, a good soccer player, a good pool player, and a good horseman. Chris Cummins was another one that never started drafting till later on in life, but early in life he was gifted with a, uh, what do they call it? Hand, ball, eye yep. coordination. And I think a lot of those people, and unfortunately, like if they wanted me to be a ballet dancer. I'd be no good at it. Um, if they wanted me as a, a, a mathematics genius, I'd be hopeless. So I think we're all gifted with some some part. And if you want to be a, a backyard with five acres and you haven't got a bison, you haven't got this, haven't got, if you've got the will to win, you'll get around it somewhere. Yep. Yeah. I remember I didn't hear it, but I heard a fellow called Frank Green was running a school somewhere, and he said, if I hear the word can't in this school, he said, you're out the door. He said, there's nothing you can't do if you try. And I think with that, you know, there's so many people have got the will to win, but there's not a lot of people that have got the will to prepare to win. Yep. You know, that's a little bit complicated, but, you know, you've got to prepare yourself to do, do what you're going to do. And uh, for those fellas with, yeah, go to schools, go to as many drafts and hang around people like if you can get out the Huey Miles or Bruce Norton or John Stanton or any of those fellas, you know, get out there and do a bit of freebie for them and hopefully you'll pick up something. Absolutely, mate. Now getting back, um, it did mention how I started with rough riding. Well, there was a fellow called Ken Healy and he, he lived down near Blaney and he was breaking in horses for a bloke in Orange. And I heard of Ken Healy, you know, I'd read about him in the 
pigs and horns, and I said, geez, I'm going to find this bloke. So I found him, and I used to go with him. Like, you know, he'd be riding three or four horses, and I'd get on one of his young horses and help him out and just ride with him. And um, I'd ask him a few questions and that sort of thing, and he just said, keep going. But uh, I think that that's the main thing. Another bloke was uh, Ian Francis. I said to him once, I said, if you've got timing, you've got it all. And he said, yes. And I said, is, is timing a gift? And he said, no. He said, if you get your butt in the saddle for long enough and hard enough, you'll get your timing. Yeah. But in those, getting back to those fellas with the five acres, um, if they've got enough dedication, if you have a look at any of the good trainers, they're 100% dedicated. Well, 110% dedicated. Absolutely. So there you go. Righto, mate. So now the other side of your story is you're a cattle buyer. And um, I think you come from uh, an era that we will never see again. We're talking like no mobile phones. Um, There could be a disaster on one side of the state in the the, uh, economic uh, climate and booming on the other. You must have some good tales to tell from those days. Oh, yes, yeah, there's, there's plenty. We, we started, um, uh, Dubbo Sale, how I started, I suppose, Dubbo Sale. Well, I started, I was working at the Abattoirs, and that was through horses. I got the job out there because the, the boss of the Abattoirs, he, or the, of the buying and the, and the livestock side of it, he had show jumpers, and he had a horse that used to, after you go over the jump, he'd start to buck and he used to throw the boys. Anyway, he said, would you ride this horse? So I rode him around, mustering the stock and bringing him up for the kill and that sort of thing. And uh, that's how I got into into the... And then, of course, I started to put a few weights on cattle and a fellow called Tommy Scanlon and um, Ron Cranfield, they gave me a job. You know, they said, oh, you can do a little sale here and a little sale there. And it grew from there. And then when I left them... I, oh, no, before I left them, I used to go to Dubbo and I'd buy cattle of a Monday. I'd buy a cattle wagon, which was about 18 head, a little steers, and Dubbo had a sale on Monday and Thursdays. And I never didn't have enough guts to, to buy on the Thursday and hold them over till the following Wednesday. So I used to only buy of a Monday, put them on the train, and they'd unload them at Orange and I'd sell 18 cattle or whatever there and hopefully I'd get, I could get 10 bob a head out of them, which was eight quid in those days. And um, I think I might have been getting about five or six quid a week. So I was getting more out of my dealing than I was with my job. So anyway, that's all right. And then I left, I left that company and got with another company that was only buying cows and they gave them permission, uh, permission to buy for myself and anybody else. And that's how we started. And I, we just gradually progressed from there. And then, of course, we went into Queensland. And as you say, in those days, there was no uh, mobile phones. And you wouldn't believe it, but there was no double-deckers. Yeah, right. You wouldn't believe that. But we took the first cow crate, what we used to call a cow crate. And they were um, a flat, like a, a, a two-decks. And then a half a deck on top, not two decks on top. And, um, you, you know, you don't even see them about today, but they used to be a lot in Victoria and 
and we thought we were made when we um, when we could get the freight a bit cheaper. But then we we bought a lot of cattle in Queensland, a lot of cattle, and we followed the market till it hit the bottom in the in the seventies, early seventies, to where cows were worth. Well, I can remember, and, and people would find this very hard to believe, but we'd buy a cow and we'd yell out 0.2 of a cent, not one cent per kilo, but 0.2 oh, of a cent. And, and the agent or the auctioneer would just knock it down and give it to you rather than sell it to you because yard use, um, commission, advertising, uh, so they'd just give it to you, yeah, so... Golly, so was it a roar and drought too, Mick? Well, yeah, in those days, like now, the, we've just come through a big drought, but you can shift cattle in three days from Perth to bloody Dubbo. Yep. In three or four days. So when there's a drought now, which, which there has been, there's a lot of cattle from, from the deep south, they went into central Queensland. In those days, you couldn't. They, they'd either just die on the place or... You know, you'd get a southern buyer up there. Now, if you go out into Blackall, Longreach, Charleville, that's where we used to buy all our cattle, you'd have no other influence only from the south. Uh, the Rockhampton line, um, they had plenty of cattle there and they never used to worry it. And don't forget, it was when we came into it, it was when cattle were hardly worth mustering, um, like those big places. I can remember being on a place out in... Uh, in the territory place called Mount Doreen, and the bloke said, "If they're not worth a hundred dollars net to me, he said, put them in the bush paddock." And I was only taking the big bullocks and the bulls because of, um, you know, they, they, they were worth nothing. When you say nothing, like how much? Like just well, like by the time you you paid freight from Doreen into to um, uh, Alice Springs, and then from Alice Springs to Adelaide. The freight would be worth, and then they they wouldn't even make their freight when you send them to you know the market in Adelaide. Golly, you with me? Yeah. Tell us about your best whack, the best whack you ever had in the in the cattle trading business. <laughs> it was about it wasn't that long ago. It was in about '94, but the job was pretty wobbly down here. It was very very dry, and we'd been going to Longreach, and they rang us up, the agents, and they said, oh, geez, Mick, you better come up here. We've got another sale, and there's no cattle, and there's a fellow that I travel with a lot, it was Tony Morecambe. And I rang Morecambe, and I said, listen, they want us to go to Longreach, but I don't want to go. I said, it's coming on Christmas. I said, there's no sales till mid-January. A million it's degrees. It's dry as buggy. Um, no, I don't think he'll go. Oh, he said, you better go. He said... Um, depending on your bit. So anyway, the long and short of it, they yarded, I don't know, they might have yarded 1,500 cattle, I can't remember. Anyway, I watched the first two pens sold and they were going from half price, half price, and anyway, and I said, oh, bugger this. So I hooked into them and I ended up buying about 1,000 cattle out of the market. Anyway, I decided, right, I'll, I'll take a punt, I'll put them on the road, and I put them on the road at, I rang, rang the um, stock inspector at Dubbo, that were called Lionel Morris, and I said to him, I've just bought a lot of cattle. Which would be the best route to put them on till we put a sale on in Dubbo in, in January? And um, at that stage, I said to my wife, 
I said, look like we'll have to go and we won't get a driver over Christmas. So I said, look like we might have to take the kids and go ourselves. So anyway, this Lionel Morris, he, he said, yes. He said, don't drop, I wanted to drop them at Ningen. He said, no, drop them at Warren, unload them at Warren. And he said, you're looking for a bloke to walk them into Dubbo. And I said, yes, I am. And he had a, oh, a mate out there that was exactly the same as kids had come home from school. And um, we walked these cattle from, I trucked them from Longreach to Warren, put them on the road at Warren and filled them up. And, of course, then luck would have it. It rained, and it rained big time. And um, I think at the end of it, we got offered oh, money all along the road, like all the stations out there found out who owned them, and they knew that I traded. So they, they'd ring up, do you want to sell a cattle? Do you want to sell it? No, no, we've committed ourselves to truck them to, uh, to walk them to Dubbo. And um, we walked, you know, nearly a 1,000 into Dubbo and yarded, yarded them there. And that was the biggest win that I've ever had. Mm. Good on you. Yeah, but in saying that, too, don't worry, we, we hit the deck pretty often. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story about that. We had 200 baller steers in Dubbo. And we got offered a hundred and ninety nine dollars, a hundred and ninety eight dollars one, and I put one in, and it was hundred and ninety nine, and the bloke shook his head and walked away because we wanted two hundred. We trucked them to uh, Walgett on adjustment, fattened them there to whatever, trucked them across there to Burke when Burke Meatworks was going, and we took ninety bucks for them. Oof. Yeah, so it wasn't all, but fortunately for me. Um, I've come out of it pretty good. I've, um, you know, most dealers put a place through the dealing, and I was one of the lucky ones to get a place out of the dealing. Yep. So that's um, fills me in a bit, Scott. But, <laughs> uh, getting back to um, you know, early in the piece where I started to, um, you know, how I used to watch, there was a woman, and I had a rough pony or whatever I had, and this woman. I can't think of a name. It was either Sarah or Joan. I'm not sure. And she had a show pony, and she used to ride him in this park around the corner from where we lived. And I used to, gee, she's polished, and you know, she she used to just do it so so nice. And I suppose I studied a bit off her and put your own profile together. I suppose or port, what do you call it, portfolio. So that's um, that's about. I can tell you, what else do you want to know? No, mate, that's terrific. There's, there's a common thread there, mate. You're obviously a fierce competitor. And another thing Tom Williamson used to tell me, he said he could see by the look on your face when you were going to win. Yeah. He said there was times when the draft was over before you rode in the cutout yard. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, Mick. Look, I think Australia has characters like yourself. Um, you'll probably never get around to writing a book, although you should. Mm. Um, and I appreciate this... Um, one hour of your time we've had, Mick. I want to congratulate you on, on a career you've had. You're, you're an icon of the sport, and I hope so many young people uh, listen to this and, and listen to your advice, and um, hopefully they follow down the footsteps of one of our very best. So um, I thank you for your time, Mick Ward. No worries. Thanks, Scott. Cheers, mate. We'll be in touch, Mick. Right on, mate. Bye. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram.